In a land where unicorns run freely and digital currencies are coveted, a deadly virus has killed millions and turned the global economy upside down. That sounds like a land of make-believe, but it's actually the one we're living through now, and it's putting all of our assumptions to the test. That's why we need to stay ahead of the game, and the quickest way to get there is on the Investopedia Express. I'm Caleb Silver, and welcome aboard. It's a busy week for investors as we are in the home stretch of this unfathomable year. So let's check the scores on the doors and get ourselves ready for what's coming. With three weeks to go in the year, here are the returns on major asset classes so far in 2020. Gold is up about 20%. Global equities have returned about 13%. U.S. investment-grade corporate bonds, about 9%. U.S. Treasury yields, 7.7%. U.S. high-yield corporate bonds, 6% cash, less than half a percent in the U.S. dollar, less than 5.5%. Oil is down 27%. Did I mention Bitcoin? Oh, it's only up 170% year-to-date, and it smashed through a couple of all-time highs in just the last week. We're going to get what's behind Bitcoin's rise, who's buying it, and what's different this time in just a few minutes. But let's get set up for the week ahead. The long and cold COVID winter is just beginning as the impact of Thanksgiving travel and holiday gatherings is sure to mean more cases, more hospitalizations, and more economic restrictions. California is beginning two weeks of lockdowns and expect more of those to be announced in the coming days. Vaccine news has been booing the stock market, and we should expect more headlines and developments this week. The UK is rolling out its plan to distribute the recently approved vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. Will U.S. regulators be next? Moderna says its vaccine is 95% effective. When will regulators approve it for treatment? AstraZeneca's vaccine is in its third round of testing, and investors have high expectations for all of these remedies to halt the spread and unlock the economy. Speaking of regulators, Facebook may find itself in the crosshairs of U.S. antitrust regulators this week as the Justice Department and several states sue the social network for monopolistic practices. They've been threatening that all year, and they've already brought suit against Google for similar practices. Shares of both companies are up 36% year-to-date, so investors may already have decided how that's going to work out. The U.S. government already has its hands full. The deadliest days of the virus are upon us, and at the same time, the special unemployment benefits for 13 million Americans are due to run out at the end of the month. Lawmakers can't agree on a new stimulus plan, but another issue is looming, and that's a government shutdown at the end of this week, unless Congress passes a funding bill before midnight this Friday, December 11th. This would be the third government shutdown of the Trump administration, and while they're usually less scary than they sound, this one comes at a terrible time. Will lawmakers find common ground to fund the government and come up with a new bipartisan stimulus plan that averts this unnecessary catastrophe? One can only hope. Speaking of hope, the unicorns are coming. The initial public offerings of DoorDash and Airbnb are expected to price this week, in addition to companies including Hydroform Holdings, the hydroponic farming company favored by cannabis growers, and Pubmatic, the advertising platform for the app world. DoorDash, the food delivery company, expects to raise over $3 billion in its IPO and price its shares in the $90 to $95 range. That would give it a market value the same size as Chipotle, and that's no bowl of beans. Airbnb just boosted its IPO range to between $56 and $60 a share from $44 to $50. That gives the rental home company a valuation of as much as $42 billion when it goes public later this week. 
So far this year, more than $140 billion has been raised in initial public offerings on U.S. exchanges that far exceeds the previous full-year record set at the height of the dot-com boom in 1999. Investors may remember that the 2017 Thanksgiving dinner conversations were all about Bitcoin and whether it was the next gold or not. Those conversations ended when the cryptocurrency took one of its death-defying plunges from around 19000 to around 4000 per coin. Bitcoin was back on the menu this holiday season as the cryptocurrency was approaching, then smashing through record highs just in the past week or two. But there are a lot of differences between investor perceptions about Bitcoin in 2021 than there were four years ago. Michael Sonnenschein is the Managing Director of Grayscale Investments, which allows accredited investors to buy Bitcoin and other major cryptocurrencies through the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And he joins us now on The Express. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. There are a lot of reasons why Bitcoiners add or near record highs and pundits have various reasons, but you've been in this a long time. You know the space better than most. What do you think is the key number one reason? Oh, Caleb, it's hard to come up with one reason. I think we are in an environment unlike any environment that Bitcoin and other digital assets have ever existed in. And I think probably the biggest driver, if I had to say, is what's happening in the macro environment at the moment. The amount of fiscal stimulus that has been injected into the system in the wake of the COVID pandemic to you know, stimulate the economy and get things moving again, I think has really caused investors to think about what constitutes a store of value, what constitutes an inflation hedge, and how they should protect their portfolios. It's important that investors think about that. And I think a lot of them are actually thinking about the juxtaposition between digital currencies like Bitcoin, which have verifiable scarcity, and thinking about that in the context of fiat currencies like the US dollar, which seemingly are being printed unlimitedly. Sure. And and you can't do that with Bitcoin, as we know. Well, I want to get into this store of value question, because that was always the big hang up over the past few years, where it's not a store of value, it is a store of value, it's the next gold, it's not the next gold. So is it or isn't it? And, and does it matter for investors that are thinking about taking positions in it that want to be Bitcoin or cryptocurrency investors long term as a major part of their portfolio? I think really, Caleb, what it is, is it's we're in a totally different investment paradigm. When you look at all the fever that was around digital assets in 2017, the last major peak in the Bitcoin price, the market today has just developed so much more from where we were back then. We've really seen the development of a two-sided market, derivatives, options, lending and borrowing, futures markets. It's just a much more robust 24-hour two-sided market that is starting to act more and more mature with every day that passes. We certainly did not have public companies putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet as a reserve asset like we've seen this year with Square and, and companies like MicroStrategy. We didn't have major financial services players like PayPal letting their users, letting their merchants not only buy and sell cryptocurrency, but also use it to facilitate payments. You didn't have billionaires and very famous investors like Drunken Miller and Paul Tudor Jones coming out publicly in support of this asset class. So I think you've seen now the confluence of quite a few validation points that are really causing investors to have quite a bit more conviction 
and not to mention a lot more air cover for their participation in the asset class. You mentioned some of the institutions. You mentioned PayPal and Square. They're also acquiring Bitcoin, a lot of it. And we've seen that there's been a, a lot of acquisitions of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, not as much by individual investors, although they're very involved, but institutional investors. And you've seen that in the Bitcoin trust that you have. Who, who are these people? Not specifically, but are these major financial institutions or these central banks? Who are you dealing with? Where are the inflows coming from? About 80% of the inflows we're experiencing at Grayscale are coming from institutions. We're talking about hedge funds, pensions, endowments. Also, it certainly would be remiss to not mention the massive inflows we're seeing from registered investment advisors, financial advisors, high net worth individuals, family offices. It's really coming from across the spectrum. I will say, while on the institutional side, our investors would probably cap out at maybe the five, you know, maybe 10, in some cases, billion dollars in assets under management. We're now dealing with institutions that are much, much larger than that. And they are actually allocating faster and more frequently than we've ever seen them before. So it's been really, really interesting to see these major, major institutions showing up and wanting to allocate and using grayscale investment products to do so. Right. Well, you had one of the first ways for investors, institutions, or individuals to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So you got there first. What about central banks? I'm, you know, you hear maybe overseas they're talking about digital currency, even in China, even the Federal Reserve here in the US is talking about the future of digital currencies. How has that uh, fanned the flames, if at all, for Bitcoin and Bitcoin enthusiasts? I think folks need to understand that central banks, government, state actors, they're all taking a hard look at digital assets. They are, in fact, already developing central bank digital currencies or what we call CBDCs. And it's important for people to understand that they will not exhibit any of the same attributes that we feel make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies investable. They'll look similar or they'll act similarly because they'll be digital. They won't have any tangible properties. They'll reside on a blockchain the way Bitcoin does and Ethereum does and all other cryptocurrencies but they will be void of some of the great attributes of Bitcoin and others, such as there not being a central authority, such as there not being any inflation, such as there not being the ability to, to change the amount that will be in circulation. And so while they may have certain attributes that make them look like other digital currencies, which have gained quite a bit of fever and, and adoption, they will certainly not act in the same way. And we think that's an important distinction because... Even if the U.S. dollar moves to a blockchain-based token, even if the renminbi moves to a blockchain-based token, those state actors responsible for administering those currencies are not going to give up their power to retract and print and set monetary you know, inflation targets and things of that nature. And I think the near-term influence that we've seen as a result of state actors focusing on the space is increased regulatory validity and scrutiny on this asset class. I think the likes of Facebook and other major companies getting involved in the space has caused there to be conversations happening now versus conversations that in the absence of major players getting involved would probably not be on the docket for, say, the next two to three years. You mentioned something earlier. I want to come back to it. And it's very different than central banks and, and how they operate with monetary policy. There is a scarcity to Bitcoin. There's only a certain amount out there with 
the dollar or any other major currency. We've seen central banks print like there was no tomorrow because if they didn't, there might not be a tomorrow. But that's why we've, you know, we've seen this flush of monetary policy and trillions of dollars into the pandemic to try to to build a bridge and rescue uh, economies and, and financial markets. That's very different than Bitcoin. How does that scarcity contribute to the narrative or to the, the, the fear of missing out on the part of big investors? It's fundamental. Investors believe that regardless of their conviction in Bitcoin or its ultimate one or multiple use cases, that their portfolios now warrant the inclusion of an asset that is verifiably scarce. I think long for, for really centuries, we've believed in the scarcity of assets like gold. And I'd say one of the most prevalent uh, themes we've seen on Wall Street these days is investors rotating out of assets like gold and, and into assets like Bitcoin. I think November of 2020 was some of the largest outflows of gold funds on record. And I don't think it's coincidental that that is happening concurrently with Bitcoin hitting all-time highs. So it's fundamental to investors' views that their portfolios warrant the inclusion of an asset that is, in fact, verifiably scarce. And we you know, kind of subscribe to this idea that gold is scarce. It's a precious metal. But somehow we keep finding more and more deposits of gold all over the world. And it's not as well suited for a, a digital world that we live in. Physical exchanges, the past times, maybe gold was the right thing for investors to think of as a flight to safety or a store of value. But certainly the world has gone increasingly digital. And COVID and, and really the way in which the world has had to react has only kind of stepped on the gas in terms of the ways in which we will continue to interact in a digital and or virtual nature, further highlighting the need for virtual and digital stores of value. It's not as if I'm, as if I'm coming over to your house with a wheelbarrow full of gold to pay you for 10 chickens. That's not going to work anymore. So you, you, I think you're not wrong that COVID and the pandemic has accelerated development and adoption. Let's talk about this for individual investors, especially for folks new to the game or who've been considering investing in Bitcoin, but they're so fearful because you can't really tell why it's up at 19,000 today and 16,000 tomorrow. Maybe you can, you're inside the market, you see who's moving the money around. But for individual investors trying to approach investing in Bitcoin, it doesn't have the fundamentals we usually follow for stocks and commodities. What's your advice to them? How do, how do you access this market? Well, first and foremost, do not put more into this asset class than you can afford to lose. It is early days, it is risky, and it can be volatile, although the volatility has dampened quite substantially from earlier years. That being said, I encourage people to start small. It is somewhat hard to believe, but a lot of folks don't understand the divisibility of something like Bitcoin. A Bitcoin today, as we speak, is a little bit over 19,000 US dollars each. However, each Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million units. It's shown to the eighth decimal place. And so you can buy a penny's worth of Bitcoin. You can buy a dollar worth of Bitcoin. You can buy $5 worth of Bitcoin. And so I tell people to start small. Again, keep in mind that they should not be putting more into this than they can afford to lose. And they should leg into it over time until they get to a place that they're comfortable with. If they don't want to access digital currency directly, and there's tons of great services that they can use to do so, they can come and look at the Grayscale family of investment products. They can look at the futures market. There, there's quite a few access points, and I think only more and more of them coming into play every day. Right. Great advice there. And and let's talk about the, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. You guys were among the first to the scene, maybe the first to the scene to offer something for individual investors to access 
What's next for you guys? What kind of products are you thinking about bringing to market given all this enthusiasm and where pricing is? Well, I think today, you know, we're super proud of the traction that the Grayscale product families had with the investment community, offering 10 different investment products so that investors can use those products to, you know, build out portfolios and express views on certain digital currencies and not others and and kind of make their own allocations. I think we're very committed to continuing to bring new products to the market, whether that takes the form of additional products like our Bitcoin or like our Ethereum or like our Litecoin product, which are each single currency products, right? So we'll look to create other products around other digital assets to give investors additional avenues to allocate or baskets like our digital large cap fund, where we'll come up with baskets or themes um, that investors will want to invest in. And I think you'll uh, start seeing some more offerings from us, uh, certainly in the new year. The good news is that the market's growing. You're growing at grayscale. And so are a lot of your competitors in the field. The bad news is you might need a lot more securities lawyers on on the uh, speed dial. So good news, bad news. But we really appreciate the breakdown. Michael Sonnenschein, the managing director of Grayscale Investments. Thanks for joining The Express. Thanks for having me. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing or economic term we need to know as we face the week ahead. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Colby, who goes by Cold Slice on Instagram. Cold Slice will be warming their feet with a pair of the soft and stylish Investopedia socks that everyone's talking about. Hey, and you can too by suggesting the winning term for next week's show by DMing us on Instagram. Colby wants to know more about modern monetary theory, and given this week's focus on more government spending and the rise of Bitcoin, which has a limited supply, modern monetary theory is the perfect choice this week. Nice one, Cold Slice. According to my favorite website, Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT as those in tweed suits like to call it, is a heterodox macroeconomic theory with the central idea that governments with a fiat currency system like the US can and should print as much money as they need to spend because they cannot go broke or be insolvent except by political decree. Traditional thinking says such spending would be fiscally irresponsible as the debt would balloon and inflation would skyrocket. But according to MMT, A large government debt isn't the precursor to collapse we all thought it was. They say countries like the U.S. can sustain much greater deficits without cause for concern, and in fact, a small deficit or surplus can be extremely harmful and cause a recession since deficit spending is what builds people's savings. So, are modern monetary theorists right? Well, we're about to find out, as the United States general government debt now stands at about 107% of gross domestic product, and more spending is needed. We'll let Janet Yellen, the former Fed chair and Joe Biden's pick to be the next U.S. Treasury Secretary, take us out with her words of wisdom on the extraordinary measures the Fed was forced to take during the great financial crisis and why many of them may be needed again. This is Yellen speaking on October 27th to the New York Economic Club. What is the appropriate future role of the unconventional policy tools that we deployed to address the Great Recession? Well, I believe that influencing short-term interest rates should continue to be our primary monetary policy lever in normal times. Our unconventional policy tools will likely be needed again should some future economic downturn drive short-term interest rates back to their effective lower bound. If confirmed, Yellen would be the first woman to become U.S. Treasury Secretary, and it's about time. 
Thanks for joining us this week. You be extraordinary in whatever you're doing. You stay safe, stay healthy, and stay smart. I'm Caleb Silver, and we'll talk to you again next week.